Uh, I want to begin the introduction today. It's going to take me a few minutes to kind of set this up. So I'm not going down a rabbit trail in case you were wondering, like, what in the world is he talking about? I, I need to talk about marriage for just a minute. You, you with me? Okay. Uh, because what happens in marriage also relates to what happens with your walk with God. And I'll, and I'll show you how. So, um, so I've been married 42 years. Uh, and uh, it's, been, it's been awesome. I married my best friend. I married the next door neighbor in San Diego. Uh, she was a twin. It's, it's, been, it's been awesome. But um, it's, there's many things that you learn about yourself when you're married. And you learn, you learn how to get along and how to love each other and all that kind of stuff. So it leads to a question. Um, how do you build an invigorating marriage full of great fellowship? I mean, how do you do that? Uh, because when Liz and I were in Maui um, on our 20th anniversary, which was now 22 years ago, that's kind of shocking. Like, where does the time go? Uh, we sat on the beach watching the sun go down. And I, and I looked at her and I said, after 20 years, uh, I just love you because, you know, you're, you're still my best friend. Because you are. You're, you're just like best friends. And 42 years later, and Liz is here this morning, I can still tell her, you're still my best friend. And other things too. So, yeah. But anyway, how do you build an invigorating marriage? So I wouldn't say, and Liz would probably agree, uh, that, I mean, it hasn't been perfect, has it? Yeah, she's laughing. She's laughing. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, it hasn't been perfect because we've had to learn, you know, uh, how to do things. So we want to first look at uh, how not to build an invigorating marriage, like the wrong way to go about it. All right. And then we'll relate this to the book of First John in just a minute. So just hang with me. So uh, there's a, a doctor, his name is Emerson uh, Egerich, uh, who wrote a book called Love and Respect. And I'm using it uh, with a couple, one of my friends from California. Uh, he's playing professional basketball in Italy right now. So the family asked me, would I fly back to California to do his wedding? I'm sure. But you, could you counsel him and his wife while he's in Italy and she's in L.A.? Could you, you know, counsel him? I'm like, sure, absolutely. So I'm taking this young couple through this book, Love and Respect, on how to build a great relationship. Now they're, they're at, you know, they're engaged. So they're at that whole glow time, like, why are we studying arguments? We'll never argue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you will. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we want to talk first about, about how not to build a relationship. Um, well, this is the wrong way. So here's a, this is DC. I love charts. Here's a chart. Okay. Okay. So if you're not married yet, clue in on this. If you are married, hopefully this will be insightful. So how do you go about building a relationship the wrong way that hasn't, doesn't have a rich fellowship? Well, you get on the crazy cycle. What's the crazy cycle? This is this. The guy's at the top. So if a husband operates in his relationship without love, he doesn't talk in a loving way. He doesn't respond in a loving way. He doesn't say loving things. He doesn't do loving things. He just works and he just is. Watches sports, reads the paper, whatever. But he, he's not really loving you. Then the, 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 the wife reacts with... What is his problem? I just cannot respect this man. And so she nags and complains. And I think the Danish word for nag means to chew on things. She's just chewing on him. And he's thinking to himself, what is her problem? She's supposed to respect me. And so he shows less love toward her to kind of get her attention. Doesn't work. Uh, she reacts by not respecting him even more. He then reacts by not loving her more. And just, that's the crazy cycle. Who's, who's married here? Confess now. See? How many can say, you know, I totally know what that's about. Do you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a crazy cycle. And it just kind of goes around and around. That is not what you want to be on on as marriage married couple, right? I mean, that will wear you out. That will turn your goatee white. I mean, it's just, it will wear you out. So how do you build an invigorating marriage? And it's going to reflect on your spiritual walk in just a minute. Uh, how, does it, how do you build an invigorating marriage? Well, let's just flip the chart around. The love that comes from the husband. 
in a positive way. When he speaks in a loving way, does loving actions, it responds in a loving way, you know, asks his wife about emotionally how she do it. I mean, all this stuff. When he loves her, sacrifices for her, etc. cetera. Uh, when he loves her, then that motivates her to respect him. She's like, oh, I absolutely love him because he respects me. And he does this, he does that, he, he listens to me, wants to know what I have to say, what I think, blah, blah, blah. She respects him. That motivates him to, man, I love my baby. <laughs> and he loves her more, thinks of new ways to love her. And that motivates her to, man, I love my man. And just woo, woo, woo. And it just goes around. It's awesome. So, so Sorry for the sound effects, but some, somebody... <laughs> Somebody that's in the crazy cycle, see somebody in the energizing cycle, and they're going, man, what have they got that we don't have? Well, they're not in that. So uh, if you want to get out of the crazy cycle, which is not what I'm talking about today, uh, but I am kind of talking about it, uh, you need to switch over to the energizing cycle. But we we want to apply this, because I'm reading this, because I always say everything I read, things I do in life, I'm always reading them through the grid of, I need a sermon illustration. Because Sunday's always coming. You know what I mean? It's like, what happens when I can't think of one? Then, well, so I'm reading this book and I'm going, whoa, this is First John completely. So I took the chart that um, he has in his book, Love and Respect, and I changed it to fit John chapter one. So I'm like, there's one-to-one correspondence here. So joy and happiness in marriage. Wow, that, that, I can apply that to Jesus. So I changed it and made it theological. I hope, hope they don't sue me or anything, but I, I, I changed it. So I changed it with God. You're related to him now as a, as, as a saint. If you're a believer, I'm just speaking to believers. Once you become a believer, you're, you're, you're part of his family, son or a daughter. And at the top of the grid, he's holy. He's always holy. His holiness should motivate you to be holy. Remember, Peter said, be holy as he is holy. So God's holiness, which never changes, should motivate me to have holiness in my life in how I think, what I do, my moods, my reactions, actions, everything, everything in my life should be read through the grid of holiness that I want to be holy like Christ is holy. And that motivates God to show me more of his holiness, which motivates me to live a holier life and blah, blah, blah. That, that's spiritual maturity. That's an intimate walk with Christ. But the thing is you have a free will, don't you? What does a free will mean? You have the ability to say no. So can a Christian tell God on the energizing cycle of faith, on a given section of the faith or a given part of their life, can God tell in a given area of his life, no, I am not going to be obedient there? The answer is yes. They can and you can. Or else the New Testament, is. why are all those commands in there? The commands are there to get you to get onto that invigorating spiritual cycle of holiness. Because as you pursue holiness, as he is holy, and walk away from the darkness in your life, as we're going to see, you have this rich fellowship with Jesus. So, so how do you have that rich fellowship with Jesus? Because maybe you don't have it. You used to have it. Maybe you're a new Christian and want it more. So how do you do that? That's 1 John. 1 John tells you how to have that rich fellowship. Because we know the, the, the saints in 1 John uh, had people that infiltrated their church who were of Gnostic teaching. And, and the teaching was totally similar to Christianity, but was off in a major way. And they were infiltrating these churches and messing with the faith of people about what they thought about salvation, about Jesus and they had split churches. People had walked away from church, never were going to come back because it was too chaotic, too many fights there over doctrine, etc. And then old man John steps in and says, uh, I'm your pastor. I need love on you. And they need to bring you all back to truth. When you embrace who Jesus is uh, and get back to true doctrine, well, then fellowship can flow. But you're not in, they were in the crazy cycle, spiritually speaking. John's like, no, you need to be in an invigorating cycle. So Verses five to 10, he's going to talk about that, which leads to the, con- the, the main idea type of question. Here's how I pose it from the verses five to 10. 
John's saying, how do you develop an energized, intimate relationship with Jesus? He's speaking to Christians. How? Now, if you're not a Christian, the question is, how do you have a relationship with Jesus? How do you have a relationship with Jesus? Well, I, I trust him as my Lord and Savior. The moment I do, I become his child. He forgives my sin. But we're talking about Christians. How do you maintain that relationship? So it's like keeping a marriage going toward the positive, toward growth. But if, what about my spiritual walk? So I submit to you, as you, as you modify and enhance your spiritual walk with Christ, it will, by, by definition, impact your marriage. And so how do you develop that relationship? So he's going to tell you six things that you need to do to manage that relationship with Jesus and keep the, rel- the fellowship sweet and intimate. And bear in mind, I do not hold the viewpoint uh, that in this chapter, he's speaking to non-Christians, as that's the majority viewpoint of the book, uh, is that he's speaking to non-Christians. There are people that profess faith, but don't possess faith. I used to hold that position. I don't have that position anymore. Abandoned it years ago, because it does not match the argument and flow of said book. And so that's where I'm coming from, in case you're wondering. So he's speaking to Christians about their fellowship with Jesus, because he said he was going to talk about that in verse 4. He told you his purpose was to talk about that. So how do I maintain that rich walk? Six things that you need to pay attention to. Number one, answer number one, is recognize God's character. So we already talked about his character was on that chart we had a few minutes ago. What is God's character? He is holy. I asked uh, uh, Dr. John Hartley, who is now with the Lord, uh, who mentored me in college uh, back in the day. I think he was fluent in 16 languages, total brainiac. Uh, He would sit in class and read hieroglyphics and just blow us away. And he's just an amazing man of God. I asked him one day, I said, Dr. Hartley, I was taking a class on Isaiah from him. I said, if you could take all the character of God, I mean, all of his facets, and I know he's a perfect balance between all of these things, but if, if you just had to choose the intrinsic nature of God, what would you say? He said, oh, God is holy. That's what John's saying. John's saying God is holy. He says in verse five, this is the message that we have heard from him, Jesus, and we announce to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, I'm going to show you a little bit more Greek than I normally do because we have a bunch of people here at our church at Dallas Seminary because we're their East Coast campus. So they're taking Greek and they're asking themselves because they stop by my office, what do I do with it? All right? Well, you weave into a sermon and blow people's minds. Yeah. <laughs> so we want to show you a little bit more just to kind of help you understand how the original text can help you understand uh, the written text in your hand. So uh, the first answer of how to get intimate with Jesus is recognize God's character. He's holy. So here's how it works. Uh, Since God is holy, it calls me to be holy. When I am holy, well, then I have a tight relationship with him, which means when I'm not holy and I choose not to be, then that relationship is severed. Not that I don't have salvation, but the intimacy is gone, correct? It's like you and your wife can have a a knockdown, drag out fight, but you're still husband and wife, right? But what's missing? Intimacy. Same thing with Jesus. So he says, this is the message. We got this from Jesus. And he uses we language here. This is why I know he's not talking to professing Christians. He's saying, we, like me. He said, I get this. He says, this is the message that we, he's talking about the apostles. We got this message from Jesus and we announce to you. The, the word here that he uses for announce, uh, agelia is the word. Agelia is uh, similar to the word agelikos. And agelikos is the word for angelic. What is an angel? An angel, the, the word in Greek means to be a messenger. So he says, uh, we apostles are like a messenger. We got all our info about Jesus, who he was as the God-man, contrary to what the Gnostics say, he's just a slight emanation of God, like in Jehovah's Witness teaching, where he's just, well, Jesus is just a God. Um, He says, no, 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 he's fully God and fully man, and we saw him daily in action. And we're taking that message like angels, and we're delivering it to you. 
And what's the message? Well, that God is light, uh, and in him is absolutely no darkness. That is God. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, Paul talks about this. Paul says, God, the blessed and the only ruler, the king of uh, kings and the Lord of lords. Well, what's he like? Uh, he tells you uh, who alone he is immortal, uh, who lives in, in an unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, because you would be consumed with his brightness. I mean, his brightness would make the sun pale into insignificance. Uh, Paul looks at him and says, to him be uh, honor and might forever. Amen. Let it be so in the Greek text. He said, what is God like? The epitome of light, light. I mean, what's that mean? Well, that means there is no evil in him at all. No darkness, no moral spot or stain. That is who he is. This is why Jesus, when he walked the planet in John chapter eight, multiple times and in chapter nine, said to the people who were listening to him, when they asked him who he was, he would tell them, I am the light of the world. The light, not a light, the light. It's very important whether you have the article before the word light, because the article the means it's definitive. If it was left off, it would be uh, indefinite. Then he just one of many lives, then all religions are true. But he said, no, I'm, I'm the light, I'm the light. And that's why uh, when you read in the New Testament, like in John uh, chapter uh, 12, verse 36, uh, Jesus says, believe in the light while you have the light, so you may become children of light, which says by definition, it, I am born a child of darkness because of sin. But the minute I know Christ as my savior, I left the kingdom of darkness and became a child of light forever, never to go back to that. Amazing. The thing is, I would have to ask you as a side note, if you're not a Christian, what's keeping you from being a child of light? Or what questions, problems do you have that are keeping you? And as a side note, I would also ask, when you wind up in eternity without Christ in judgment, and those questions will haunt you for eternity, will they comfort you? No. No, you need to come to terms with who Jesus is. But back to my sermon. He's talking to Christians here. He says that, it, that God is light and in him is no darkness. Because what did the Gnostics say? So the Gnostics are very clever because they infiltrated churches like people do in our day. And they, well, we're progressive in our theology. And some of those archaic things the disciples and the apostles taught, well, you know, they're too restrictive, too puritanical, too tight, not open enough. So we need to kind of change those and modify those so we feel better about them. So that's what the Gnostics did. And let me explain to you how they operated. So in Isaiah 45, verse 6, I'll show you how they would interpret this. It says in Isaiah 45, verse 6, concerning God, he says uh, that man may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. So is there another God besides God? Nope. None. Zero. He says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, the eternal one, the covenant God, and there is no other. And he goes on to add this. Uh, I am the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, the ontological always one who does all these things. So uh, a Gnostic would come along uh, uh, of that theological bent of the day. And a Gnostic, meaning Gnosis, meaning to know, um, and they would come along and say, we have esoteric knowledge on, on, on Jesus and on God. Uh, what, what's he really like? Well, he's really not fully God and fully man. He's just an emanation from God because the outer body is evil. Therefore, God couldn't inhabit an evil body. So he gave us a watered down version of God. That was Jesus. Uh, and oh, by the way, uh, it says in the Old Testament that God created light and darkness. Therefore, so God must be a composition of light and moral darkness. That's how they taught. Uh, now, it is a far stretch to go from the fact that God created physical light and darkness, according to Genesis 1, uh, verses 3 to 5. He did create light and darkness. It's quite another to say, but there's, in, there's moral darkness about him. That's what a Gnostic would say. Well, it says in the Bible, 
And, and, and John's coming along saying, hey, do, do not listen to those people. Same thing goes on in our culture, doesn't it? People infiltrate churches, they get awakened by some new viewpoint, and they begin to wet it to scripture and challenge people about, well, this is the new way to think about this. And, and, and no, that's contrary to what we've been given in the faith. So I would just say as a side note, beware of those who twist and modify doctrine. And that's what they did in the church. So what was the result? Churches split, fractured friendships were severed, people left churches. And John steps in to say, man, your relationship with Christ is suffering. Let me, let me come in and help you. Uh, understand who God is, first and foremost. He is at the top of that circle. When you understand he's holy, it motivates you to be holy. Choose holiness and you'll grow up in Christ. Now he's gonna go on verses uh, following this, verses six and following, uh, to give us a bunch of conditional clauses. And I'm gonna talk about something grammatically that I haven't ever talked about before, but, but I have to because of what happens here. So in, in verses six to 10, he's gonna throw in a bunch of conditional clauses. And the conditional clause is an if-then statement. If this, then this. But in English, how many words do we have for if? Uh, it's not a trick question. Just, just one. Now, now, the reason why Greek is so awesome, it has two words for if. Yeah, and you can see them in the Greek text. Uh, and, and, and based on it, I won't get into all the details, but they have, uh, in the New Testament, you'll see three forms of an if-then clause, and they all mean something different, but there's really five different kinds of if-then clauses in Greek, uh, you know, classical Greek, ancient Greek, etc. But in the New Testament, you're looking at three. Now, here it matters which kind of clause he uses because the if is the protasis, the then is the, the, the potasis, okay? So in Greek, a first-class conditional statement is pretty certain. John didn't use that. Well, the second-class statement that you can see in Greek when you read Greek, it's like, oh, that's a second-class condition. Well, that's uh, like contrary to fact. Uh, and he's saying, well, that, that doesn't apply here. Uh, he uses the third-class condition, which is, well, we don't know if they're going to do it or not. So if you, you have children, right? If you do, it's always conditional whether they're going to listen or not, right? You know, they come a sophomore, junior, they're very wise, they're smarter than you. What do you know? You're the parent, and et cetera. So, you know, you give them those conditional clauses. If you break curfew, then your life is over. And things like that, you know? But you don't know if they're going to actually obey, right? That's the thing. No one has children or your children are all obedient. I don't know. I mean, yeah. So, so he's using a third class condition. Why is that so important to understand? Because John's writing to Christians in these churches that are all messed up with false doctrine. And he's telling them, I'm going to use a third class Greek construction to tell you, I'm not sure as your pastor, whether you're going to obey what I'm going to tell you or not. It's on you because you have a free, what? Well, so let's dig into it with all that grammatical stuff. And I'll test you next week. How many types of? Greek clauses are there? There's four if-thens. That's why English is so limited. So second answer uh, to how to get into an intimate relationship with Jesus, if you've messed that up, recognize your character. What is your, what is your character? Well, let's understand first your character by understanding positional and practical holiness. Positionally, you have the holiness of Jesus, which when you die allows you to get into heaven because you're covered by his holiness. How do I know that? Well, all throughout the New Testament, positional holiness. Uh, Revelation chapter one says this. John writing later in his life, in his 90s. Uh, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who, who is and who was and who is to come. This is Jesus, the eternal one. Uh, and from the seven spirits, seven, the number of God showing perfection, the Holy Spirit is perfection, uh, who are before the throne, his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, Christians, and released us from our sins by what means? By his blood. 
So when I was lost in the kingdom of darkness over here, and I didn't know Christ, I was, in, I was a child of the devil. I was dark in my sin. But once I came to know Christ in 1967, I got transferred to the kingdom of light. And the way that it happened was I came by means of the blood of Christ. It's the only way. And that blood washed me clean and made me positionally holy before God. Are you a Christian? If you are, that's true of you. You positionally have the holiness of God. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 30. He says, by his doing, you as Christians are in Christ. You are in Christ. Who became to us uh, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. All of those things he just lists there, you have as a Christian when you're put in Christ. So you're either outside of Christ, or if you drew a big circle, you're either outside of Christ because you're born in sin, or at the moment of faith, you get placed in Christ. Nowhere in the New Testament does he say he takes you out of Christ. Once you're saved, you're saved. He puts you into Jesus. You're in Jesus. So when you are in Jesus, you have positional holiness. The problem is practical holiness because you have a free will to choose to obey commands or not obey commands. So when you go to a sermon and you listen to into a sermon, you can say, when you walk out of here, I am not doing that. I am not learning those four different kinds of if then closet. That's what I'm talking about. Whatever moral mandate you find, you, you have a will to obey or not obey. And so that, that becomes practical holiness. Uh, and we read in Galatians chapter five, when it comes to practical holiness, notice what Paul says to the Galatians. He says, but I say to you Christians, you have a choice. You can walk by this spirit. And if you do that, you're not gonna carry out the desires of your sinful flesh. That's what he says. Verse 17, he says, uh, well, your flesh, it sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So you may not do the things that you would please. Can any Christian say, I totally understand that one because you are still in a fleshly body and it fleshly desires, correct? Right, so I've told you before, I don't like people who cut in line. I've told you this. I just don't like it, it's a personal thing. So when somebody does it, I have options as a Christian, right? I can pray for them. I can push them out of line. Uh, I can talk to them and tell them, you need to move, bad things are gonna happen. I mean, whatever. But you have, you know, this sinful man kicks in. You know what I'm talking about? And you can struggle with this thing uh, and he says, man, I totally know my character. What's my character? I'm positionally holy. I got practical issues. Can anyone say, I got it? Do you understand this? It's that dynamic. Now that growing up in Christ is saying, I'm gonna yield to the spirit more and gain victory over my sin. And then I'll grow up in Christ. And so when he comes here in these verses, he's talking about that. So look at verse six. If we, we, he's speaking about Christians. He's saying, I include myself. Because if he was speaking to non-Christians, he would have said, you, if you say you have fellowship. But he said, no, no, we. Because he says, I, I, I have the same issues. If we say we have fellowship with him, Jesus, yet and we walk with darkness, because we're living hypocritically, we lie and we don't practice the truth. If we say we have fellowship with him, oh man, my, my relationship with Jesus is so tight. There's just no leakage. <laughs> really? Yeah, right. Well, how about all that darkness we have seen in your life? What darkness? Well, let us, let us as your friends explain it to you. Yeah, because all of a sudden you realize that, well, yeah, you do have darkness. And when you do that, not if you do that, but when you do that, um, you're living a lie that's uh, of life because you're, you're hypocritical. And he says, if you do that, you're walking in the darkness. So is it possible for a Christian to walk in darkness? Yes. Yes. Because you can choose to walk in the light or to walk in the darkness. The idea is to walk in the light. What's that mean? I follow the truths of the word of God. And when I do that, um, I'm practicing the truth. What truth? 
He's not talking about the gospel. He's talking about the truth of the word of God, the moral mandates of scripture. As I walk in them, as I'm obedient to them, I'm doing them. But if I choose to disobey and do the opposite, like if you're a, a wife or a husband sitting here, you're still thinking about the first chart that I sold you. You haven't heard the rest of the sermon. I'm kind of stuck on the first diagram, you know? <laughs> well, you're, you're thinking to yourself, I got to get off this crazy cycle. Yeah. Well, then when you leave here, uh, you should be saying, we, I have sin. My husband has sin. We, have sin. We, we, we need to deal with this before God, the Lord, and we'll see how to do that in just a minute. But, but it's, it's, it's dealing with it, the struggle in gaining victory. But if you're not gaining victory, then you're living a hypocritical life. And, and John is merely saying, you need to recognize your character. You're still in a body of flesh, and it still has sinful desires. The object is to commit your body to Christ each day and live a life of, of victory by the power of the Spirit of God. So he says, uh, you know, if you say you have fellowship, intimacy with him, but you're walking in, in sin, uh, no, God sees darkness and he wants to see light. So you need to you deal with that before him. The churches in Asia Minor were watered down with all kinds of erroneous thinking that was separating the churches, destroying lives, because uh, what, that's what false doctrine does. Uh, because they were of the opinion uh, that the outer body was, not, was, was evil and the inner body was that which was awesome. Uh, so it didn't matter what you did with the outer body. You could sin all you wanted. It didn't matter to God. And John comes along and says, no, God is light and he sees your sin. How do you get tight with Jesus? Recognize uh, his, who he is, his person, but also recognize your character. Number three, and uh, recognize your cleansing. First John 1, 7. But if we, well, it's conditional again, third class. Don't know if it's gonna happen because you have free will. Uh, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of uh, Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So think about this. Uh, if, if I recognize I, my character has issues as I struggle against the flesh, as I recognize that and I do battle against the flesh by the power of the spirit of God uh, to get victory, uh, it, it results in uh, more obedience in my life, more obedience in your life, which results in richer fellowship. When he says here, we have fellowship with one another, he's not speaking about fellowship with other Christians. He's contextually talking about fellowship between you and Christ. Now, by definition, fellowship with Christ that's tight does spill over into fellowship with other Christians. Show me a, a saint at war with other Christians and I'll show you a saint that's at war with his savior because he's not being obedient. Show me somebody that has great fellowship uh, with other Christians and I'll show you somebody that knows Christ very well. So if you walk with, in the light, obeying God's moral law, uh, is scriptural mandates, you have fellowship with God and the blood of Christ cleanses you from all sin. What does that mean? I think what that cryptic saying means that, because you're positionally holy, right? You with me or did I lose you on the first diagram? You're positionally, you're positionally holy. So what's he talking about? He's talking about practical holiness. We all have blind spots of sin that we don't see, right? Husbands, just ask your wife, she will tell you. Wives, ask your husband. Kids, tell your parents the sin that you see and vice versa. That, yeah, there's sin there. Uh, so what I think this means is, uh, as you recognize the, your need for cleansing uh, before the Lord, uh, his blood then comes in on that practical scale and begins to wash you of things you don't even see yet. Moving on. Can a, I ask you again, can a Christian choose darkness over light on a given day? Yeah, yeah. It's all throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 5. Notice what it says in verse 7. Uh, do not be partakers with them, like the, the non-believers, uh, for you were formerly darkness, uh, but now you are of the light in the Lord, then walk as children of light. So for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, parenthetical statement, big for Paul, he's always adding extra stuff. Verse 10, he says, uh, well, we're trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the Christian walk, isn't it? What's pleasing to the Lord? And then he adds this, 
Don't participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but in, in, instead expose them. So in verse 7 and in verse 11, he gives you two commands. Do not be partakers with them, the lost. And verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. This is very interesting because in Greek, there's two ways, two ways to say no. In English, we can only do it one way. In Greek, you can say it two ways, and it has totally different meanings. The one way to say no means, and you use this when you raise children, do not even think of doing that, whatever that is. Have you ever done this with your children? Do not even think of, it, don't even think of doing that. But then there's the other kind of no that you give them. You need to stop doing that, Right? So the one that Paul uses here, uh, because it's a present tense imperative with, with, a, with a, it's an imperative with a present tense verb. He's telling the Christians in Ephesus, stop doing what you're doing. Again, the question is, can a Christian choose darkness? Unfortunately, yes. Because Paul tells him grammatically here, I use the second way to say no here. It's an imperative with the present tense, meaning you're doing this. You're hanging out with non-Christian friends and you're emulating their thinking and their behavior. Don't do that. And then in verse 11, he's telling him, stop participating in their unfruitful deeds because you're doing it. And when you do that, what's that do to your fellowship? With Christ, destroys it. So how do you get back to fellowship? You recognize you need cleansing. Verse eight, uh, recognize also that there, well, there's a contagion. What's the contagion? The contagion's your flesh because the flesh has desires for God and the flesh also has desires for sin. And you're not going to be free from the body of sin and death until you see Christ face to face. Oh, for the day. Remember Romans 7? We studied Romans years ago. Uh, Romans 7, uh, Paul talks about his walk with God. Read it. That which I would do, I do not. The things that I don't want to do, oh, that's what I do. It's the whole chapter he talks about this. You read that and you're thinking, man, that, is, that has been my Christian walk so many times. I get up in the morning, have devotion, read the scriptures, want to go out and please Jesus. I don't even make it in traffic. I've already blown my spiritual walk. I went into the giant, somebody cut in front of me. I've adopted Marty's sin. I mean, you know, unbelievable. You know, uh, John had issues, didn't he? He and his brother were called sons of thunder. Why? They had anger management issues. Don't you know Jesus saw him blow up over stuff? That's so lame. Stop that. And Lord, I just kind of can't help myself, you know? You know, because he probably had a problem with cutting in front of him. He just blew up, but it's not okay. You know, something like that. So, some kind of accent like that. So what's the contagion? It's the flesh. The flesh pulls you to do that which is evil and realize you got that contagion until you see the Lord. So you got to give your flesh to the Lord each day. It's like, Lord, take my body and, and the spirit who resides in me and give me strength over the flesh. Fill me. This is why in Ephesians 5, 18, it's like be filled with the spirit. It's an imperative that you constantly ask God to fill you. What's that mean? To control me so I can live in such a way that there's holiness and my relationship you is intimate. Realize there's that contagion until you see Christ. And he says, if you, if you um, <laughs> he says in verse eight, if we say that we have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. You know, he says we, he's including himself. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. He's not talking about gospel truth. Contextually, Aletheia here that he's talking about is talking about the moral mandates of the scripture. If I choose willfully to walk away from some of them, at that given point, I'm still a child of God, but I'm not living according to the truth of the moral mandates. What should I be doing? Lining myself with those truths. So when I walk out of church on a given Sunday morning, it's not like, hey, cool, man, what's for lunch? I walk out of here going, wow, man, my relationship with Christ is just not as tight as it should be. It's not intimate. 
And I've deceived myself into thinking I'm better than I really, really am. You know, because the older that you get in, in, in the Lord, you can be tempted to say that. Verse 9, which I had to memorize when I was a young Christian back in 1967. They gave me a little packet I still have in my basement. Um, it, it was off of a mimeograph machine. Remember those things? You have no idea what I'm talking about? Praise God. Uh, they were messy. Yeah. Uh, and when I was a German four uh, grader for all the classes, I had to do all my German on a typewriter and then run it off on a mimeograph machine. I hated those things. But I still have the verses that I memorized. First uh, John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins uh, and, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does that apply to a non-Christian or a Christian? Well, contextually, he's talking about Christians. If we, John saying me, if we confess our sins, plural, because if you look at your life and think, well, I've only got one sin. Not really. Yeah, no, you probably got more than one sin. You probably got sins that you need to deal with. When you confess your sins to Christ, he's faithful and righteous to forgive them. How quickly does he forgive them? Well, give him a year. He'll think about it. No, he says he will, he will forgive you and cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. John includes himself here. Uh, because he, he knows, man, Lord, there, there are times when I have exploded with my temper and I have not confessed it and I was out of my fellowship with you. I'm still your son, but boy, our relationship wasn't great until I went and I apologized and, and, and I confessed. What does confession mean? Uh, the Greek word to confess, uh, uh, it's, it's, this, uh, it's this word right here, uh, omologeo. Uh, omologeo means to say the same thing, literally. So applied to confession, what does it mean? God says X and you do why, <laughs> and you come up with all your rationalizations as to why you can do why. And God's like, no, X is sin. And you're doing why? Oh, you've modified the scriptures. You're, you're sinning. When you confess, you're saying, Lord, what you've said in the scripture is sin is sin, and I confess what I see in my own life. I got an email the other day, I don't know, maybe six, seven paragraphs long, a big one, about a certain kind of sin. I won't mention the sin, nor the person in question. Um, but they were arguing why their concept of sin was not sin anymore. And they wanted to know what I thought. I'm thinking, this is going to be a short email reply. <laughs> it's sin. Thank you. You know, you know, you know it, it, that's what we do. We, we try to rationalize our sin, modify it, make it more progressive, fit into the culture. And so we sin. But when we confess sin, we're saying, no, no, Lord, what you said is sin is sin. I mean, I, I will just tell you, it just hit me. Um, when I was playing sports in high school, I had a filthy mouth. I really did. And you use uh, language like that to intimidate people, like your opponent, like when I wrestled or stuff. That's what you do, psychops. And I was a Christian. And I, filth I knew all the words and how to put them together. And I used to think to myself, what in the world am I doing? I'm supposed to be a witness for Christ. Uh, and then I started looking through the New Testament. Does the New Testament say anywhere that I, I can't use foul language? I couldn't find verses. So I thought, well... <laughs> Off you. I haven't found the, I didn't know Greek back then. Uh, I don't see the word cussing in here anywhere, you know? And so I just went about my merry way and the Lord eventually convicted me. And then I had to get victory over that. It was, it was my go-to. I mean, step into the plate. The catcher would say, you know, you ain't even gonna touch the ball. Then I would have a conversation with him before I got it. I'm not like, oh my, how embarrassing. Have you ever done this? You're not gonna confess it right now, right? So I'm going to tell you, the Lord does say that filthy communication is verboten. You know, not okay, all right? So when you confess it, you're merely saying, Lord, I know. This is not good. This is sin. 
When you confess it, you're saying, Lord, I agree with you. It's sin. Cleanse me. And he will. That's the wonderful thing of Christ. Grace for sinners. His children. If your son or daughter sins against you and comes to you and says, Dad, I am so sorry. I did the opposite. Aren't you going to look at them and say, I, you know, I forgive you. I made mistakes like that in high school. They're going to forgive you. Jesus is the same way. He's going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And when he does that, what happens to your relationship with him? It goes back together. It goes back together. So I would say before you leave here today, you may be thinking to yourself, Lord, what do I need to confess? What? And he will show you. You get, you get alone with him. And you, you, you get that confessed. And when you get that confessed, he's going to cleanse you and strengthen you to walk a new life. And your relationship with him will be intimate again. What's the last thing you need to do? This is verse 10. Recognize you have, well, contortions. And he does this kind of again, just because we're hard-headed. In verse 10, he says this. If we say we have not sinned, we make God, him, a liar. Remember, he's light. He sees all of your sin. And his word is not in you. He's not telling you the gospel's not in you. No, the moral word, because you're not obeying it at that point, is not in you. And so far, you're not obeying it. So you go into all kinds of contortions. As you get older in the faith, when you first become a Christian, you see all kinds of sin about your life. And then you get a little more crafty as you get older, and you learn a bit more theology, and you get to the point where you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm really not all that bad. And you sit in Bible studies, and everybody's confessing your sin, and you're looking at them going, those poor souls, (laughs) they are just not where I am spiritually. Well, I would say you need to stop and consider. Uh, You are sinful. You are sinful. Uh, Because if you say, no matter where you're at, walked with Jesus 30 years, three years, whatever, if you get to the point where you're saying, I don't see the sin, just ask him. He will show you. Because if you say you have no sin, you're telling God to his face, you lie about sin. God's like, no, I'm light. And I see your sin. And when he sees your sin and you see your sin, what should you do? Were you in the sermon? You should what? Confess. Um, I take you back to the 1960s when we had a dental uh, opportunity in, in one of my classes. <laughs> they came in one day to teach us as young people, which I thought was pretty funny. I was like fifth grade, sixth grade, how to brush our teeth. I'm like, this is corny. I mean, I'm like 12 years old. I totally can do this. So they came in and they said, here's free toothbrushes, toothbrush, you know, go, you know, go down to the bathroom. Everybody brush your teeth. So we all did brush our teeth, came back, you know, look in the mirror, make sure they're clean. Yeah, I looked, yeah, it was cool. Got back you know, to the room, like, what are they doing? And then they gave us these little tablets. Do you know what I'm talking about? My wife's in dentistry. <laughs> I actually married somebody in dentistry. You know. And so they gave us these little tablets and they said, okay, now put this in your mouth. It's like a little fizzy. Remember fizzies? Yeah, you, you drop this in your mouth and just kind of swish it around for, as it dissolves and it will turn your mouth like, you know, red. And, and when it does that, it will show where you missed. I'm like, this is stupid. So I threw a little pill in my mouth with all my friends we waited a few minutes. Okay, it's dissolved. Let's go to the bathroom. We all walked down to the bathroom. We all stand in front of the mirror smiling, you know, and it was, it was unbelievable. I was like, Larry, dude, you didn't even brush, you know? you know? He's like, have you looked at your mouth? Unbelievable. Tartar everywhere. It was unbelievable. <laughs> that is now a spiritual illustration, <laughs> isn't it? Because when you leave this house of worship and you're thinking like, my Lord, I got to get back with you. What do you need to do? Who, who's the pill to show you all your sin? The Spirit. And you say, Lord, just, the Spirit's in me. Color in my life that which is evil, that I can then confess it and get back into my relationship with you. Lord, do that for me. And uh, that's a courageous prayer. But that's the greatest prayer you can pray 
Because intimacy with Jesus is, well, that's where the power's at. And if you don't know Jesus, well, he's just a prayer away. Let's pray. God, thank you for the scriptures, opportunity to know you, to walk with you, uh, to study theology and how it applies to life. And may we live so closely with you. The intimacy is, is sweet and the fellowship is wonderful. And really, as a side note, bless our marriages. Uh, and may they be invigorating. Uh, and for those who are not yet married, uh, teach them, uh, even in this, uh, how to have a great relationship with other people. And really, that starts with a great relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.